Let me give you the, the map for tonight before we get started, just so you know what's going to be going on. Uh, tonight is our uh, quarterly church conference, and so uh, because of that, I'm going to get done a little bit earlier than usual. So it's our first conference of the year, which means we have a few things to do. We've got our ministry budget to look at. So um, usually we go to 7 o'clock on these nights with our teaching. Tonight I'm going to try to get done about 20 minutes till, so I'm going to shoot for 6, don't hold me to it, but I'm going to shoot for around 6.40. And um, when I finish with Second Kings study, I'll pray and we'll kind of readjust and we'll pass out some paperwork. And that's a good time if you're visiting and don't want to stay for the church conference. You'll have time to slip out during that if you'd like to. But So we'll kind of have a pause. We'll, we'll finish our study in Second Kings and then we'll go into our conference for tonight. So that's the plan. Now, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up with me to the book of Second Kings. We're going to be in Second Kings chapter 18 tonight. And we've been studying through... Kings for a while. You'll remember that um, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, First and Second Kings are one book, and together they're given this long story of Israel's monarchy. So it starts with the death of King David, and it runs for hundreds of years all the way to the fall of Israel, really. And so it's this 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 huge section of Israel's history. But we're not we're not mainly reading it for history. We're mainly reading it because in this history. God reveals himself, particularly, or especially I should say, we're learning something about how God relates to his people in Kings. And maybe even to, to drill into that a little bit more, we're learning especially about how God relates to his people in their rebellion. Okay, so we're seeing God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's rebellion, because that's really the story, a big portion of the story in First and Second Kings. The, the tragedy of it is, in First and Second Kings, we're seeing the most spiritually privileged people on the planet of this time constantly rebelling against God, right? Of, of all the nations in the world, it is this tiny people group of Israel that God gives his law to. It's Israel that God gives the sacrificial system to. It's Israel that God sends this steady stream of prophets to. It's Israel that has the temple. It's Israel that's getting all this information about God. It's to Israel that God speaks. He's, he's not sending the sacrificial system to Moab. He's not sending the whole line of prophets to the Assyrians. God is doing all of this for Israel. And yet, in spite of just this avalanche of spiritual blessings, the story of Israel is really this consistent story of rebellion. Until finally, we got to the point last week that the northern kingdom finally and forever, for this, as the story goes in Kings, falls. The Assyrian Empire finally came in and conquered the northern empire. Remember now, um, not long after Solomon died, the nation of Israel had split into two. You had the larger section, Israel to the north and then Judah to the south. And now Israel has been defeated. And uh, last time we were together, we were in chapter 17. And most of chapter 17, if your Bible's open, um, it just gives not just the fall of Israel, but it explains why. It gives this long history of how they had sinned against God and why the judgment of God had fallen. I'll just read one verse just to remind you of that. This is in 2 Kings 17, verse 15. 2 Kings 17, 15 says, this is talking about the northern kingdom. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and, get all the ands, and, and, this is all that they rejected, and his testimonies which he had testified against them, they followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them. 
concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. I want you to get this phrase where it says, they followed idols and became idolaters. That is really the word for emptiness. What it says is, they followed emptiness and they became empty. If you have the legacy translation, it words it, they followed vanity and became vain. Or the, I think the NIV words it, they followed worthless idols and became worthless. And the point is, they became just like the idols that they worshipped. Right? They, they were worshipping, there's a story um, out of Wales, there was a four-year-old girl in Wales, this is years ago, who her parents started getting concerned because they noticed that their daughter's complexion was turning increasingly like a yellowish orange color. And so they took their, their daughter to the doctor to try to figure out what was going on and he ran all these tests and couldn't figure out what the problem was. So he, he got her parents to start keeping track of her diet, what she was eating every day. And they figured out that this four-year-old girl every day was drinking a two-liter bottle of Sunny Delight. And from drinking, drinking all of this Sunny Delight every day, all of the orange dye and orange food coloring in Sunny Delight started affecting her complexion. She was drinking so much orange drink, she started turning orange. Well, that's a good way to think about what's being described here about the Northern Kingdom. They're, they're consuming all of these worthless idols so that they become worthless. They become like their idols. This is really one of the, the absolute truths that you see in the Bible. We become like what we worship. Here's the way it's said in Psalms. Listen to Psalm 115, verse 8. It's talking about the idols they made. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You see what it's saying? Those who made and worshiped those idols became like those idols. We become like what we worship. That's because worship isn't just uh, any other activity. Worship isn't like changing a tire. Worship isn't like tying your shoes. Worship isn't like going grocery shopping. Worship fundamentally changes you. Now, the positive news of that is, what does the Bible say happens as we worship the true God? Listen to Paul's words. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What happens is we behold God. We become like God. But the negative side of that is, if, if we give our affection and our attention and our devotion to other things, we become like those things. So if, if money or career or popularity or fame or attention or whatever becomes my idol, it fundamentally changes me. Worship changes us. And so what it's saying here is these people had spent so much time now imbibing these idols, these corrupt, depraved idols that they have become utterly corrupt and depraved themselves. And so that God finally sends judgment. Now, you'll remember that in the northern kingdom, they've been defective from the very beginning, right? This is, a, this is a kingdom that started badly because they started by breaking away from the line of Davidic kings. That's the kingly line God had appointed. And they decided they were going to start their own kingly line and they were going to begin their own religion where they were still going to worship Yahweh. They were just going to worship Yahweh their own way. 
They were going to have their own temples and their own idols and their own priesthood. And they were going to do it their own way. So this whole thing, it started corrupt. And now it finally ends with the Assyrians, 722, conquering them. And do you remember what the Assyrians did when they conquered a people? They put them in a big blender, mixed them up, and then scattered them to the wind. So the northern kingdom, most of the population is taken captive, hauled off into exile, and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. So there's a change. At the end of 17, there's a change for the rest of the book of 2 Kings. And that change is, for the last 30 chapters or so, we've spent all the time bouncing back and forth. Because we have the divided kingdom, so we'd spend two chapters in the northern kingdom, and then two chapters in the southern kingdom. But now this, the, the northern kingdom has been wiped out. So the rest of, of Second Kings is going to focus on the southern kingdom of Judah. And you would think, after the northern kingdom collapsed, that the southern kingdom wouldn't be far behind. Because the northern kingdom was much larger, much more populous than the southern kingdom. So you would think the southern kingdom's fall would be imminent, but it's not going to be. The southern kingdom's going to end up hanging on for almost 150 years longer. Now that's, it's striking when you consider how small the southern kingdom was. Northern kingdom was made up of 10 tribes. Southern kingdom was made up of two tribes. So it's sparsely populated and very small. Just to put it in perspective, of course, the borders change from time to time, but the southern kingdom of Judah, total, the total territory was about 3,400 square miles. That's not very large. So Ware County is like 900 square miles. So the entire kingdom of Judah was only like three and a half times bigger than Ware County. So you're talking about a tiny little country. The Assyrians are dominating this whole area. So you would think the southern kingdom would immediately class, but it doesn't. Why doesn't it? Well, I guess the short answer would be because God's gracious. But the particular way God shows his grace is he's going to end up raising up two good, godly kings. Okay, so there's going to be lots of kings over the next 10 or so chapters that are going to rise up. But there are going to be two men that God raises up who are good kings. And God uses these two kings to slow down this slide that the southern kingdom is on toward ruin. And the first king that God raises up is a king named Hezekiah. Okay, and that's what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to start in. All I'm going to do tonight is just give an introduction. The first 12 or so verses, how, how Hezekiah is introduced to us, what we're told about him. And then we'll come back over the next few weeks and look at some of the key events in his life. All right, so if your Bible's open to 2 Kings 18, we're going to start reading. 2 Kings 18, beginning in verse 1. Here's our introduction to King Hezekiah. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Okay, stop there for a minute. So we're introduced to King Hezekiah. And right away, did you notice who Hezekiah's father was? He is the son of Ahaz. 
Do you happen to remember who Ahaz was? Ahaz was arguably the most evil king ever to sit on the throne of Judah. We looked at him a few weeks back. Ahaz was the guy who actually participated in child sacrifice. Ahaz pledged his allegiance to the king of Assyria. Do you remember the guy? Um, Ahaz is the guy who went up to Syria to meet the king of Assyria, and while he was there, he saw an Assyrian altar. And he was so impressed by it that he got the priest in Jerusalem to build a replica of the Assyrian altar. And he pushed the bronze altar that God had, had called Israel to build out of the way and put the Assyrian altar in its place. So he's this evil king who's replacing the worship of the true God with Assyrian worship practices. I mean, he's an evil man. And yet, here we see that he has a son who God saves and becomes one of the best kings of Judah. Now just make sure you get that for a minute. That is such a good reminder to us that you and I are not condemned by the sins of our parents. You're not under an eternal curse because you had, no matter what your parents did, you're not under some curse from God or condemned because of anything that happened in your family line. That's, that's not the way it works. Now it's true that, that our parents have a tremendous, the, the, the influence of a parent is tremendous but the influence of God's grace is greater. So here's a king who had a horrible dad who actually becomes one of Israel's greatest kings. That's one thing I want you to notice. The other thing I want you to notice is that the narrator describes Hezekiah in the most glowing terms possible. Did you notice who he said he was like? Says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So who is Hezekiah being compared to? David. Now we've seen this a lot in First and Second Kings where David is held up as the gold standard of Israel's king. Every other king is being compared to David and no king matches David. But all of a sudden we come to Hezekiah and we're told, here's a king like David. Now what's interesting is there have been other kings that we've been told good things about. But every other king, there's been an exception. There's been a caveat. We'll be told things like, he did right in the sight of the Lord, except. And what has that normal exception been? That's the, well, you've heard that. If you've been here over the last few months, there's a line that you've heard repeated over and over and over and over. I'll read you some examples, just in case you don't remember. This is going back to 1 Kings. But the high places were not removed. Asa was a good king. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. 1 Kings 22. And he walked in all the ways of his father's Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. For the people offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. 2 Kings 12. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Second Kings 14, however, the high places were not taken away. Second Kings 15, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. Second Kings 15, however, the high places were not removed. Do you get the theme of this? Even the best of kings so far, there was one thing they did not dare to touch. They wouldn't touch the high places. Now, if you, if you haven't been here, the high places were the little localized shrines. They had been built by the Canaanites who were there before Israel, and they were these little shrines built all across the land of Israel. 
And, and usually there would be a little idol there, there would be a small little altar, and it's where you could go for kind of personalized individual worship. You could go there, you could burn incense, you could worship the idol. Israel sometimes would use the, the, the high places as places to worship Yahweh. So you could use the altar. But all of that was forbidden. God didn't allow them, whether it was idols or Yahweh, to use the high places for worship. But no king up to this point had been willing to do anything about it. Now think about why that is. See, it's one thing to reform the worship in the temple. But when you start going to the high places, the high places are scattered everywhere. This is on people's property, on their hills, their own local shrines. You start doing that and you're meddling now. And that's an easy way to get people mad at you in a hurry. So most of the kings were willing to, even the good ones, would reform the worship in the temple, but they were not going to mess with the high places. But now we have a king, Hezekiah, who actually is doing the business of tearing down the high places. So that's telling us something important about Hezekiah's commitment to the Lord. It's telling us something important about uh, the backbone that Hezekiah has. Okay, so that's the sort of man that Hezekiah was.